All right, tonight, we're going to start off by talking about uh, something that happened in the Middle Ages. Now, why that might be a little odd for us is because we're nowhere there uh, in our conversation so far. Um, but I, I want to I draw some lines together, but uh, I- if we keep going at this pace, I fear, uh, we may be here a while. So I want to I, I wanna, um, take what we're learning about our New Testament and I want to see what the church does with this New Testament and the formation of their canon. I want to kind of fast forward and I want to show you what ends up happening with this canon and then we're going to backtrack just a little bit. So we're going to fast forward and then I'm going to hopefully fill in some gaps um, uh, about these things. So we're going to start off at the Council of Trent. Um, and the Council of Trent is happening between the years 1545 and 1563. Now, up until this time, all the councils, for the most part, that have happened throughout the church have been ecumenical councils, uh, ecumenical meaning um, all churches were involved and were universal, okay? Um, that they were ecumenical and and we would be with the church on all the councils before Trent but when Trent came along this was there was a big divide and it changed church history forever uh this is right at the time of the reformation and so uh what this was was the the Roman Catholic response to the Protestant reformation and so we have the Protestant reformers saying something in particular whereas the Roman Catholic Church couldn't go there with them, obviously, and so there was a big divide, and so there were two sides of this issue, and the Council of Trent is what really affirmed the uh, Rome's, the Roman Catholic Church's stance on the things that the Protestant reformers were saying. Well, what were the Protestant reformers saying, and why did the Catholic Church have such a big uh, problem with it? Well, a lot of it had to do with Scripture, and... uh, Really, uh, I think we can uh, really add this to our conversation of all that we've been talking about so far. I think you'll find it interesting here. Um, and you'll see, like I said, what has happened to this canon of Scripture. Okay, so the council then, what does it do? The council affirmed the Scriptures as contained in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, 73 books. Why is that odd? We have 66. Where did the other seven come from? You know the answer. The Apocrypha. Apocrypha being found in the Old Testament or New Testament? That would be the Old Testament Apocrypha, although there is a New Testament Apocrypha. Um, this is not what it's in reference to. So there were seven books of the Old Testament that we do not have in our Old Testament, but the Catholic Church still does today because of the Council of Trent. Uh, whereas the Protestant reformers were rejecting these books, they said, no, 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 um, these books are right. Also, um, Scripture is that which is found in the Latin Vulgate. Let's make that clear. Um, remember, as translations change, um, or, okay, well, I'll say this. When, about what year was the Latin Vulgate uh, first uh, made in circulation. You remember how early on that was? 
in the year 1545, how long has the Latin Vulgate been used by the church? That might be interesting to know, right? Has it been used for only about, you know, 100 years, 500 years? What, say that again? I'm sorry. 1,100 years because the, the Vulgate was about 405 when it was finished by Jerome. And so uh, over a 1,000 years, the church has been using the Latin Vulgate. And so the reformers were saying, hey, um, don't you think it'd be good if just like your normal person could read the Bible? I mean, shouldn't we, shouldn't that be important to us? That was Luther's big thing too, wasn't it? He wanted the scriptures to be in the everyday man's language, and so he translated it into German. And uh, anyway, this was a big deal, but the Catholic Church said, the Bible is the Latin Vulgate, and that is what it is. And it has 73 books, no more, no less. Both of those things we would disagree with, okay? So we would be on the side of the Protestant reformers at this point. But I have a quote here that I found interesting when I was reading over the minutes from the Council of Trent, which was not all that interesting. Listen to this, though. But if anyone receive not as sacred and canonical the said books entire with all their parts, that is the 73 books, as they have been used to be read in the Catholic Church as they are contained in the Old Latin Vulgate edition, knowingly and deliberately contemn the traditions aforesaid. This is hard to understand, isn't it? Let him be anathema. Here's what's being said in, in this. Uh, first of all, there's two things, and I changed the color, but you can't really tell, can you? As they are contained in the Old Latin Vulgate, and you noticed those who contemn or... Uh, uh, hate the traditions. They deliberately don't like them and they don't follow them, um, the traditions. So there's two things being said here. Um, if anyone doesn't say that the Latin Vulgate is the Bible, we're going to cut them off from the church. If anyone doesn't follow our traditions, we're going to cut them off from the church. Two things are very important here. The Latin Vulgate, the Bible, and their traditions. If you don't accept both of these, let him be anathema. Cut off from the church, also known as cut off from salvation. That's pretty intense, isn't it? What was the Reformation all about? Uh, it's, it's kind of fitting that we talk about the Reformation right now because October 31st is traditionally uh, when we celebrate Reformation Day, uh, the day that Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis on the church door. Um, it, the Reformation was already really happening. This was just a pivotal moment of the Reformation. Uh, but anyway, what was, what was the Reformation all about? There were two parts to this, and it's been divided into what's called the formal principle and the material principle of the Reformation. This is in my own words, but uh, the formal principle is who or what has divine authority? Who or what has divine authority? Okay, RCC is Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church would say scripture and tradition, including popes and councils. That's where divine authority comes from. That sounds Catholic, doesn't it? 
The reformers said, no, no, Scripture alone. Sola Scriptura. As I remember, studied our five solas. So they disagreed uh, big time about that. And not only that, they disagreed about what Scripture actually even was. What is, what is Scripture? Okay, but then there was a material principle. How is a person justified before God? In other words, okay, so we have divine authority, but what does all this matter? What do we need for salvation? How is a person justified before God? Uh, the Roman Catholic Church was saying, by works through the church and in the church. So if you are not in the church doing what the church tells you to do, you do not have salvation. So that's why it was a big deal that if they cut you off from the church, you don't have salvation. Salvation is found in the church. And if, not, if you're not in the church doing what we tell you to do, you, there is no hope for you. Maybe someone will pray for you after you're dead. But the reformers said, no, that's not how you're justified. It's not where salvation comes from. Salvation comes by grace through faith. So there's two more solas. By grace alone and faith alone. All this works out leading up. So remember I said we're going to fast forward and then we're going to backtrack a little bit. The way we're going to backtrack is by uh, looking at what was happening to Scripture in the meantime. So until you get up to the Council of Trent and there's a big divide on what Scripture is and what all this even matter, why all this matters anyway, um, uh, we kind of have to look back at the tradition of what Scripture was doing at this time. Um, you'll get what I mean by that as I start to look at it. We're going to look at what was, I think, the most interesting part of the development of Scripture during this time, which is found in illuminated manuscripts. If I had asked you beforehand, if what is an illuminated manuscript, would anybody in the room know at all what that was in reference to? Okay, well, good. We're all learning something here. So illuminated manuscripts, um, they were found between the year 500 and 1600, but primarily in its highest form, it was found between 1100 and 1600. Okay, so right in the medieval period. Produced in Western Europe, of course, in something called scriptoriums. Um, and I have a couple pictures here for you of what a scriptorium would look like. And, okay, so there's your monks with the goofy hair. And uh, they have boards. And they have up above them books. And then their copying surface. And so this is somewhat similar to what I mean what it would look like of course use your imagination here but you see the monks and what they're dedicated to specifically is copying scripture this hadn't happened beforehand right see where we left off uh, churches were sharing these documents between one another and they were saying oh that's good I I, I like that I want to copy that for my church and they were copying it, and they were giving copies over here. It was all personal, and it was by an individual level, ch individual church level. But then it becomes more formalized. And now all of a sudden, there, is script there are monks, monasteries devoted to the copying of Scripture. And primarily, they are copying the Scriptures in Latin. Primarily, they are copying the Scriptures in Latin. There's another picture. 
this was old. It's etched in wood. I don't remember what year this is from, but pretty interesting here that that was someone's take on an individual monk who's in an individual room by himself and uh, uh, doing his scribal work there. Um, what's interesting about that is uh, I read something. I, okay, I found it, found it interesting. Is that they would only copy during daylight hours because their work was so important that they couldn't possibly afford to do it by candlelight and burn up their work. So they would only do this work uh, if there was daylight enough to do it. Uh, pretty interesting, right? Uh, but, the, but they were devoted, these scribes were devoted to this work, and you see it on display in illuminated manuscripts in particular. These were not the only manuscripts being done at this time, this is just the section of, of this that I've chosen to zoom in on because I find it very interesting. I thought you would too. Okay, we have lots of illuminated manuscripts, but before we get to that, I think I have, uh, do I have a graph? Yeah, okay, so I put the Greek and the Latin Vulgate in red. So these are all the manuscripts that we have of the Bible. And you can see lots of different languages here, Armenian, Coptic, Ethiopian, Georgian, Gothic, Greek, Old Latin, and then the Latin Vulgate, Slavic, Syriac. And so these are all the uh, copies we have. What is, what is the manuscript that we have the most of? The Latin Vulgate. We have more Latin copies of the Bible than we do Greek. Um, 10,000. 10,000. I keep saying Bible, but I mean New Testament. Um, 10,000 copies, uh, manuscripts, 10,000 Latin manuscripts, Vulgate. There's Old Latin and then Vulgate. Okay. They were primarily made during this period when there were scriptoriums. And they stopped around the 1500s. Why would they have stopped around the 1500s? All of a sudden, they fade away printing press. Yeah, they don't need you anymore. So this, this um, skill and these monasteries and their work, it fades away. They don't need it anymore because now they're printing them. Okay, so we have something though very interesting happening between the year 500 and, and about 1600 and illuminated manuscripts highlight the work that's being done by these monks in monasteries and scriptoriums. And I have some images for you here. But the first one we're going to look at is uh, St. Augustine Gospels. This is from the late 500s. Uh, and it is from a copy of the Latin Vulgate. Uh, this particular image I'm going to show you is of the Gospel of Luke in an illuminated manuscript. You still might be saying, what is an illuminated manuscript? It looks like that. From the late 500s. You say, okay... My Bible doesn't have any pictures in it. I mean, I have some maps. Your Bible might have pictures in it. I don't know. But some Bibles have pictures in them. But it's different than just having pictures. These illuminated manuscripts were actually for devotional purposes. It was meant to heighten the experience of Scripture. So that when you would look at an image, you would understand the Scriptures better and you would have some kind of emotional involvement in what's happening here. Okay, so that was the whole purpose, and this is an early version, 
but you can get, you're, you're about to see that it's going to get much more intricate as time goes on. And this, does it, this is not officially illuminated because illuminated means it has gold and silver worked into it. So it shines, right? That's why they're called illuminated. Um, okay, so that's that one. Let's look at the next one. This one is very famous. It's called the Book of Kells. The Book of Kells is from the year 800, and uh, it's also the Latin Vulgate, but it is only the four Gospels. That's all the Book of Kells is, the four Gospels. Um, and, uh, okay, so here's what one of the cover pages looks like. Pretty interesting. Um, if you were to pick that up, uh, would you have any idea that this was about to be, uh, it's the four Gospels? <laughs> I mean, this looks pretty scary, right? Um, I'm going to zoom in on each of the four images because you're going to, you find this all throughout medieval art is that the four gospel writers are symbolically identified the same way all throughout the medieval period. Okay. And so here's Matthew. Okay. He doesn't always look exactly like that, but Matthew is always has a symbol of a winged man. It looks like an, maybe an angel, right? A winged man always represents the gospel of Matthew, but not the others. Why is that? Three reasons. It indicates that the incarnation here is important. Man, there's a man. The incarnation is important. The others, by the way, don't have men in it. They're animals, okay? So the incarnation is found in Matthew, right? That's a big part of Matthew, isn't it? It starts with a genealogy. It's very talks about the humanity of Jesus, the human nature of Jesus. So there's the man. And then also it talks a lot about Christian reason. Um, basically about man. Okay, and you put wings on him and it makes it something spiritual. Okay? Easy enough. What's the next one? Mark. Mark is a winged lion. Uh, they all have wings. Mark is a winged lion. Why, does, why is he a lion? Uh, he's always represented as a lion. Mark's gospel highlights the resurrection, also highlights the royal nature of Jesus. And we know there's a connection between lions and royalty, especially in the medieval period, right? Think about like shields and armor, and you always see the lion, you know, going like that, okay? Because there's something about lions and royalty. And uh, also, it indicates that Christians ought to have courage, and they find a lot of Christian courage being called for in the book of Mark. Okay, so Mark is always identified in the medieval period as a winged lion. Uh, next, Luke. Luke is a winged ox. It's a funny-looking one because his wings are turned sideways. So he would... I guess it would like propel him as he walked or something. I'm not really sure. Uh, this is because Luke uh, highlights not the human nature of Jesus or the resurrection, but it, it highlights his sacrifice. And of course, the ox is representative of a sacrificed animal. Uh, also represents the priestly nature of Jesus and the sacrifice. Okay, so there's the ox for the sacrifice. Jesus is the priest offering the sacrifice. And that's what Mark, or excuse me, that's what Luke is all about. And so this is the symbol for Luke. All right, next. John, John is a eagle. An eagle normally has wings. 
so they didn't have to add wings to that one. So he's normally identified as the rising eagle. Um, he's moving up. And this is, of course, about the ascension and the divine nature of Jesus. Um, also about Christian hope. And so this is what is being represented here in John. We know that John speaks a lot about the divine nature of Jesus, doesn't he? Um, we know that to be true in the ascension. Okay, so there you go. Um, that was all from the book of Kells. I just saw it as there was a good representation of these four symbols, and you see them all throughout medieval art and inter interwoven into, um, into uh, the books. Okay, last one I'm going to show you is the Hours of Catherine of Cleves. This is from 1440, but you can see in this one how the art has developed over time. We saw where it started, and here's what it looks like around this period. This maybe looks more familiar. Um, you notice the, the large letters at the beginning of a paragraph. This is where this came from. Okay, from illuminated manuscripts. The interesting thing about this is that this is not a Bible. However, it was made by monks and used by monks and by other Christians. It's called the Book of Hours. Anybody heard of, is anybody have any association with the Book of Hours? No? It's in it, you'll open it, it's for personal devotional use. So some of these were large so that many people could gather and read them, and some of them were itty-bitty, I mean tiny, like a, like a Gideon Bible. And you'd open it up. It, but it would still look like this on the inside. These are all done by hand. I mean, you see how much time and devotion this would take. This one in particular has 157 illuminations. This would be considered one, two. It has 157 in the book. All for someone's personal devotional use. Uh, this was... Uh, eight hours of the liturgical day, and so at each hour there was something that you needed to do for your personal devotions. So at 9 a.m. you do this, and you pray this, and you read this, and you sing this. Next. You know, at 12, at noon, you read this, you do this, you pray this, you sing this. Next. You flip the page. Okay? But all the illuminations are meant to help pull you in to your devotions, okay? But then it started to kind of take on a, uh, an art form in itself, didn't it? And you can tell that here because there's a lot of unnecessary things going on, right? Whereas before, it seemed like everything kind of had a purpose. Illuminated manuscripts. Pretty interesting, right? Whereas you take P46 over there, that's pretty boring. Give me one of these. I want, I want one of these hand-drawn, illuminated manuscripts with gold and silver and lions and stuff in it. This is just an old piece of paper with ink. Do you see what has happened to our manuscripts over time? That's all I wanted to show you there, is that from the beginning, and then you have the Latin Vulgate, and all of a sudden the church starts to become more formalized, and and the copying of scripture becomes more formalized. And so for about a thousand years, this has been the development of copying scripture, primarily in Latin. 
There were, this was still going on, though. You understand that, right? This, this didn't stop. There were more Greek manuscripts being made, especially in the East. Um, not so much in the West. But in the East, they retain the Greek language, so they're not going to copy it into Latin because they speak Greek still. So there's going to be more Greek uh, manuscripts there. Okay, so scribes making manuscripts for a long time by hand. Something happens here. And what that is is scribal errors. And it's something that we have to come to terms with in our Bible. Okay, so that's the next thing that we're going to talk about tonight, scribal errors. And the first thing, copying and scribal errors, the first thing I want to talk about are unintentional errors that the scribes made. And then we're going to look at intentional errors that the scribes made. How many manuscripts do you think we have that are 100% exactly the same? None that I know of which means they're all different. Okay, so we have, let's say, 20 copies of the Gospel of Luke. Which one's right? Because they can't all be right. So someone has to compare them and determine what? The best in order to know what did the original say, which is the process of textual criticism right? So what are some unintentional changes that were made as scribes? Get that picture back in your head, okay? They're, they're in there with their haircut, and they're got their robe on, and they're doing their monk thing, and they have a table kind of like this, and they have, you know, they're, okay, I'm copying this page today. And so they're copying, copying, they got to look up, and then you got to look down, and, and right, and then you look back up, and then you're right, and then you look back up, right? Sometimes you look back up, and you look back up to the wrong place. That's called parablipsis. That's the first thing up there. Um, with parablipsis, though, it's kind of more a phenomenon rather than a particular mistake because you could do lots of different mistakes with parablipsis, right? You're looking up. You look down, you look back up, you lost your spot, but you think you didn't lose your spot. And you just keep on going. Okay, so some of the things that can happen unintentionally are mistaken letters. You are reading and you see a letter, you see it clearly, but what you think it is is not actually what it is. And so you misspell. The majority of errors in our manuscripts are misspellings misspellings, typos. Homophony, that's if you were in a scriptorium and someone was up here and you were all down there and I'm reading it and I say a word and you write it down, I say the next word is there. You write T-H-E-I-R. You write T-H-E-R-E. You write T-H-E-R-E. There you go. You're all right. Good job. But you, all, you wrote three different words, and only one of them is the actual word that is correct. 
Okay, so it's words that sound the same word or they sound like another word and you messed up. Or you read the word, you said it in your head, but you wrote a different word that sounds like the word you read. We could see how that would happen, right? Okay. Um, homoeteleton. That's a good one. <laughs> it's a fun word, that's for sure. What it, what it means is it comes from two words, one meaning same. You get that from homo at the front. Eteleton comes from the word uh, that really means mature in Greek. It's in our New Testament a lot. Um, but it really means to mature or to come to an end or to finish. So same finish. So you're looking at something and it finishes with the word God. But the next sentence also finishes with the, same, with the word God. And so you leave out a whole sentence because you thought you're there. But when you, I'll, I'll give you an example. Okay? It means to finish the same. Um, here's 1 Samuel 14.41. You might want to make a note of this because... Um, this is something that we, we asked this, this issue. We want to know what the original said because we believe the Bible to be inspired in every word that it has um, in its originals. So our question is, then what does the original say, right? And what does the original not say? Because if the original didn't say it, it's not inspired. It's not authoritative. But if the Bible did say it originally, then it is inspired and it is authoritative. So I want to know, what did it say? You with me? And so if there's a word that shouldn't be there, I have a problem with that. Or if there's a word that's not there that should be there, I have a problem with that. What if a scribe left a word out? What if a scribe added a word? What if a scribe left out a whole sentence? 1 Samuel 14, 41. Therefore Saul said, O Lord, God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me, or Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. Now, you remember what those things are. They were something given by God basically uh, to indicate whether God was in favor of something or not. Okay, we're not exactly sure how they worked. I like to think of them, this is incorrect, but I like to think of them as uh, stones that glow. And so God, give this one. And so you, th you have one thing here, one thing here. And so, uh, Lord, if you want me to go right, give Urim, that's this one. If you want me to go left, give Thummim, that's this one. And so this one glows, and I say, thank you, Lord. And so I go that way. But it's, it's very similar that God miraculously intervened into Israel's history and gave them these things to give them instruction. <coughs> Has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I could have skipped that whole thing. It doesn't matter. Right now, it doesn't matter. The point that we're getting to is this, okay? Next slide there. I blew this up real big. I took a screenshot on my computer, Okay? Now, you'll notice here this little blue nine. Can you see it? Okay. And I clicked on that blue nine so that it would bring up this right here. Okay, so what it says there, if you can't see it, I click on that number nine, and it says, Vulgate and Septuagint, Hebrew, therefore Saul said to the Lord, the God of Israel, give Thummim. And you might say, what? 
What does that have to do with anything? So what's being said here is that in the Hebrew, the Masoretic text, which is primarily based on what manuscript? Leningrad Codex, which was made by the Masoretes. Yep. During the time of the New Testament, during the time of the Old Testament, or later on more towards the medieval period. Towards the medieval period. So this is very late. So, But anyway, that was just review. So the Hebrew does not include a sentence here and therefore it is not in our Old Testament. But what they're saying is, but the Septuagint and the Vulgate have an additional sentence that's not found here in the Hebrew. But evidently, it originally was in the Hebrew somewhere because the Septuagint and the Vulgate both have it. But the Masoretes don't have that sentence. What did that sentence say? The sentence said, Therefore Saul said to the Lord God, Give Thummim, which is not in our uh, passage, unless uh, you have a... Uh, uh, potentially a KJV or a different translation. So a possible issue here is this. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people Israel, give Thummim. And so he writes what word? Thummim. Looks back up thinks he's at this Thummim and forgets to write that sentence. Skips it. Homo etiliton, because of parablipsis. That's what happened. That's the wording for it, okay? I tell you the words because you know what? People have studied and devoted their lives to trying to understand what has happened to get our Bible to this point. And aren't you glad for that work? This Bible did not just appear here. And aren't you glad for the person that put a footnote in that Bible and indicated, hey, listen, I'm letting you know, this isn't in the Hebrew, but it originally was somewhere. You're missing a sentence here, possibly. Just letting you know. Thank you. Does having this sentence change anything? about our doctrine, about justification, about the Christian life in any way. And that is how all textual variants are. Um, okay, so that's unintentional changes. The only other thing we're going to talk about tonight are intentional changes. And you might think, why would a scribe copying the Bible intentionally change what he's reading. If I say your homework tonight is to go home and copy the entire Gospel of Mark, word for word, number one, we're all going to make huge mistakes. If we make it. I mean, what a task. Uh, so we're all going to make huge mistakes. We're going to probably miss sections. We're going to misspell words. We're going to miss words. Uh, it's, in, it's, it's not possible that we're going to do it perfectly. We might set out to do it perfectly, 
but your hand gets tired, your eyes get lazy, you look down, you look up, you miss things. But you can never imagine intentionally changing what Mark has to say, can you? He's like, I don't, I don't really like what he's saying there. I think this is better. Why would you intentionally change a manuscript? Well, first thing is spelling and grammar. You're reading a manuscript that somebody else copied 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 1,000 years ago, and you realize there's a typo in it because all scribes make mistakes. So you correct it by spelling it correctly. Remember I told you the number one textual variant is misspellings. So it's, it's written in its original, and then somebody copies it. That scribe made errors, no doubt about it. Someone copies the copy with errors. So now he has his errors and then errors of his own, right? And then somebody copies that one. So he has errors from the original that was copied and then errors from that guy and then compounded errors along the way. And so when you have another little footnote and it says there's all these differences in all these manuscripts, well, they're probably just misspellings a lot of the time. It's spelled like this here and like this over here. Okay. Um, but sometimes it's not spelling and grammar. Sometimes it's to clear up difficulties. Um, and I have an example for you, but it's not on the screen. It's not that one. Go back, backtrack, backtrack. To clear up difficulties, uh, this is in, I'll just tell you about this one, uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Mark chapter 1. Yeah, we can look at it real quick. Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Okay. In the ESV, it reads... As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then he has a quote there. Does anybody's Bible say something different? As it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Does anybody's Bible say something different? What does yours say, Sherry? As it is written in the prophet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why do you think Sherry's might say, as it is written in the prophet's? rather than as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. The oldest manuscripts say the prophet Isaiah, whereas the newer manuscripts, which are more in number, say as it is written in the prophets. The editors of the ESV chose to go with the earlier ones because later scribes interrupted the manuscript to clear up a difficulty here. And the difficulty being, this is not a quote from Isaiah. That's the difficulty. This is a quote from Malachi and Isaiah. So to clear up the difficulty, you say in the prophets. So the scribe intentionally changed this. But what we want to know is what? What? The original. So we wish that scribe would have left it alone. Right? But 
do you see that just in that one issue, how many other things did they change because they thought was difficult they wanted to clear up? Right, a lot. Are we concerned then with problems being in the manuscripts and what did it actually say? Yes. Okay, so here's another one. Uh, so not only to clear up difficulties, but for harmonization. Harmonization. Uh, you already have your Bible. Go to, uh, let's see, Luke 23, 38. Luke 23, 38. Harmonization, you make one passage agree with another. Do we have accounts in the Bible where it says the same thing, but in two totally different places? But they're a little different? Well, a scribe would say, well, I copied that about a month ago, and I remember what it said. And so I'm going to make it read like the other one, because that makes more sense. So they're making it harmonize. And so Luke 23, 38 I don't have the ESV reading here. Let me get it. It says, all right, the soldier, uh, nope. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. Does anybody's Bible say anything other than that? This uh, there was an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. Anybody's Bible say anything different? Yours says that? What translation do you have? King James Version. Okay. That is not in the original. That is an addition by a scribe to make it harmonize with John 19.20. The earliest manuscripts do not contain that. Um, but the handful of manuscripts that Erasmus had that the King James Version is based on did have it. But he didn't have the manuscript tradition that we have today to know, oh, that was added by a later <coughs> scribe to make it harmonize with the passage out of John, but it's not original. So the editors of the ESV said, we see it, but we get what's happening, but what we want to know is what did the original say, so we're not going to include that. Make sense? Okay, uh, last one, and this is where we'll end tonight. Um, theological issues. Uh, if the Bible's not saying something that uh, we like theologically, we're going to manipulate it to make it say what we want it to say. Does that sound dangerous? That sounds very dangerous. I'm going to give you one example. I have it on the screen. You're already in Luke, though. If you want to go to Luke chapter 2, you can look at it in your own Bible. Uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 43. I have two different renderings on the screen. I don't, uh, the KJV I have on the screen, I think, is KJV 1900. So an updated version might say something a little different here. Uh, ESV says, and when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. Okay. Luke 2.43 says, and when they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew it not. 
Is that what yours says? Yeah. Does it say Joseph and his mother? Yeah. Whereas the ESV says his parents. What did the original say? His parents. The later manuscripts change it to Joseph and his mother. Why? It's for a theological reason. Yeah. Mm, not quite. You're thinking, you're thinking right, but that's not really quite why. Huh? Say it again. What were they trying to make sure and not say? You're right, but what were they trying to make sure that they were really clear about? And Joseph is not that boy's daddy. That's right. He came from Mary, who is a virgin, in their theology, perpetually. Perpetually. The perpetual virginity of Mary. She never had a child by Joseph, according to Catholic theology. And so, as this theology got more um, common, it became more official. And so, we want to make sure that we don't say parents, because that sounds an awful lot like they had relations with one another. But according to them, they did not. And we want to make sure that stays very clear. Joseph and his mother. Joseph had nothing to do with this situation. He has nothing to do with Mary. So for a theological reason, they changed the text. If that's the case here, do you think there are other cases? Absolutely. Does that sound scary? Do you see the need for textual criticism? For comparing manuscripts and saying, just because the majority say Joseph and his mother... Does that mean that's what the original said? No. Can we do things to determine most likely what the original said? We can do things, yes. And we're starting to understand some of the things we need to do, understand common scribal errors, right? As we're comparing manuscripts. You say, oh, that was just, you know, obviously he skipped a word here. That happens. Obviously, he misspelled it here. That happens. Ten of them say this. It says that. He skipped it. He missed it. Okay? It's not like this one, oh, that's the original. You know? Um, so, w- you compare and you contrast. Okay. There's a big problem, though. And what do we do with the problem of scribal errors and the seeming corruption of the biblical text? That's what we're going to talk about next week. Because, as our friend Bart Ehrman likes to say, there is no actual, I mean, text that you can go back to. They're all different. They're all corrupt. Scribes were just changing stuff left and right at their own whim. Then the Bible that you silly Christians have and you call the Bible the Word of God You have no idea what you're talking about because there is no single word of God. It's all different. He likes to say a lot, there are more differences in the Bible than there are words in the Bible. So 
How could you possibly say you have an inspired word from God that he couldn't even preserve without mistakes? Some God. What do we do with that problem? How do you answer that? We're going to talk about that next week. Uh, And we're going to look at primarily three texts that are um, uh, really discussed a lot to discredit the Bible, and that is the longer ending of Mark, uh, the woman caught in adultery, and the Johannine comma, which uh, is another passage that talks about the Trinity. Um, And whether or not these are really part of the Bible, if you have a KJV, it's going to have the woman caught in adultery, whereas an ESV is not even going to have that story at all. Why? Because it was added later by a scribe who then was copied and copied and copied, and that's why King James-only advocates say, you're taking stuff out of the Bible. Well, actually, we're doing the process of textual criticism to figure out what the original actually said, and that was not in the original. We're starting to get that, though, right? Okay, um, well, I, I hope tonight was helpful, and I hope you liked all the uh, images of the illuminated manuscripts. I think they're fascinating. Um, I want to go one day to the Museum of the Bible, which is in Washington, D.C., and see some of these things firsthand, uh, because it'd be very fascinating, uh, wouldn't it? It would, in my opinion, anyway, and uh, maybe, maybe one day we'll be able to do that. But anyway, let's uh, let's pray tonight. Lord, we come to you tonight, and we are uh, grateful for the people who, over centuries, have been working to uh, preserve your word, and we're thankful for the people who have done the work to deliver it to us in such a convenient format today. But it doesn't mean that we're off the hook here but it means that we need to use our minds, that we need to consider these things, that we um, need to um, recognize that we do have responsibility here. But this is all for a purpose, and this is for the purpose of knowing your word, knowing what you have said to us, and it's all because we desire to know what you have said to us. We take your word very seriously, And so I pray that you would help our thoughts regarding this. That even though there are a lot, there's lots of information and there are problems that the world throws out and how do we answer all these objections? And it seems like there is no perfect manuscript, so how do we even know what the original said? We don't have them. And if we don't know what the original said, we don't know what God said and did it even happen to begin with. And I pray that you would strengthen our minds and our faith in these things. Strengthen our faith in you. Help us to see clearly and to understand and comprehend um, the scriptures that you have delivered to us. That this would be a a strengthening exercise to our faith. And that it would also help us to be able to have conversation with those in the world today who so discredit the Bible that we'd be able to have conversation with them and help them see what you've been doing all throughout Christian history. God, help us now as we go and help those who are still at home and sick and not able to be here with us tonight. I pray that you would, uh, if it's your will, give us all healing in our families, that we would be uh, 
uh, feeling good and, and able to get out and gather together on Sunday morning for worship together. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.